0: The broadcaster Rick Edwards was once told early on in his career by a senior TV executive that he did not have what it took to be a presenter. When asked later what impact this had on him, Edwards replied that he used it as motivation. And it has proved to be quite a successful motivation. Today, Edwards is the co-host of Radio 5 Live's Breakfast Show. He replaced Nikki Campbell in November, 2021. A natural sciences graduate from Cambridge University, He also presents the podcast Eureka alongside the quantum physicist Dr. Michael Brooks. Each week they answer such pressing questions as should we fear an alien invasion and will we ever talk to animals? I can solve that one for you because I do have lengthy conversations with my cat. The duo have co-authored two books in their trademark intelligent yet accessible and humorous style. Edward started out on T4, Channel 4's Youth Strand, alongside Alexa Chung, and went on to present Tool Academy, the quiz show Impossible, and in America, the Regency-era dating show, The Courtship. Growing up, he has said, we didn't have much money, but I was an only child and definitely spoiled with attention. Hence, me being an attention seeker and ending up in the ultimate industry for narcissists. Rick Edwards, welcome to How To Fail. Hello, Elizabeth. (laughs) I wanted to end on that quote because I think it's hilarious. Do you really think that about the industry that you're in? Is it for narcissists?
1: Yeah, I think so. Probably not quite as bad as acting, I guess. I guess acting is really the pinnacle. But there is an egotism that you have to have to want to put yourself sort of front and centre and for people to be looking at you. And listening to you so yeah I think I mean it it's slightly tongue-in-cheek yeah but I do mean it
0: where are you at with your ego are you friends with your ego
1: yeah I think I'm okay with my ego I think my ego has got slightly more chilled with time (laughs) I think and actually the sort of slightly odd transition that I've experienced is that when I was younger I was an attention seeker in quite a detrimental way to my sort of school life I got in trouble at school because I just sort of messed around and wanted people to laugh and, you know, all that kind of nonsense. And so school was tricky, not particularly for me, but definitely for my classmates and my teachers who who didn't really like my stuff, actually. And then when I got to university, sort of found an outlet to kind of do that legitimately in doing some sort of, you know, like sketches and a bit of stand-up, and that was good. And then eventually sort of, you know, ended up doing TV stuff, thinking that I would really revel in the kind of the attention because that's sort of what I'd always been seeking. And the reality is, I don't particularly like that side of it. I would never have anticipated that. I think I thought it would be everything that I ever dreamed of. and
0: Why wasn't it? I don't know
1: if I could really explain it. I guess maybe I'm a bit more... Private than I'd previously imagined, or, or my imagination hadn't sort of extended to figure out what it would actually be like for people to sort of feel like they know you. There are lots of people who really delight in that, and it turns out I'm not one of them. So, if there was a kind of iteration of my work that meant I could do exactly what I do, but sort of be entirely anonymous, I'd take that immediately. I'd really like that, but I don't think there is.
0: No, I've just got a vision of those American court cases where someone testifies from behind a dark screen <laughs> where it's just a silhouette of a head.
1: Yeah, yeah. I so, like I'm in witness, so I'm in witness protection. Exactly. The only presenter yeah. constantly in witness protection. And I have like a voice changer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> it's not been done before. <laughs> it's, it's worth giving it a go.
0: <laughs> now, I feel we should be upfront about this because. This is a unique situation for me because I have insider information in terms of uh-huh. having witnessed the start of your career yes. because we used to go out. Yes. You're my ex boyfriend.
1: Yeah, well, you're my ex girlfriend, so touche. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I have to say that I really enjoyed the idea of talking to you in this way because. Yeah, I mean, I, I, feel,
1: I feel sort of slightly nervous about it. Yeah. And quite unusually, I don't really get particularly nervous for stuff. And on my way here on my electric scooter, I was sort of thinking, Oh, this is going to be odd. Yeah. Maybe awkward, maybe weird, maybe all of the above, maybe really fun. I don't know. I think my voice just broke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you loads of questions about why we broke up. Okay. Don't worry. Let's okay. put that to one side. Sure. But it's sure. just because I wanted to be upfront about the context in which yes. we're talking. Yes, and so I. Have How many
1: actors have you interviewed previously? You're the
0: first one.
1: Oh, that's a great honour. Thank I you. I know
0: you're yeah. you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. I have actually interviewed my husband for this podcast.
1: Okay, that doesn't count.
0: No, it doesn't. So, but going back to that sense of wanting to be a TV presenter, and I also know because we used to have conversations about you being an only child, Mm. and I always thought that you had such an interesting perspective on it because you felt that it had given you confidence. And so much is spoken about the negative aspects of potentially being an only child. And I'd love to hear your take on that.
1: It's tricky, isn't it? Because I think there's a temptation to sort of try and retrospectively explain stuff that happens <laughs> in your That's what this podcast is about, yeah. so... <laughs> yeah, but you yeah. do need to be... I think you need to be a bit careful yeah. and, and need to be aware of the fact that you're sort of creating narratives that maybe didn't exist at the time, but they sort of fit now. So I would caveat everything by saying that. Also, my memory's quite poor. So yeah, I'll make some stuff up. But definitely when I was a, a child, as you said in the intro... I was spoilt for attention, and I really enjoyed that. And my parents were sort of endlessly patient and supportive and always sort of had the attitude of you can do anything you want. And my my mum is incredibly shy, and she kind of was self-aware enough to realise that's not a great thing to be. And She still is incredibly shy. But she went all out to try and make sure that I wasn't Shy, And I don't really know exactly what her technique was, but I think you could probably make an argument that she did it too well. Because I'm definitely not shy, or or, or certainly not in most contexts. So she kind of engineered that part of me.
0: I think one of the things that it might give you as an only child is a rock solid foundational knowledge that you're loved. I mean, if you have nice parents, which you do have. Yes. And I wonder if that makes you less needy for other people's approval.
1: Possibly. Yes. I definitely, I know lots of people pleasers currently being interviewed by one. Um,
0: <laughs> How and, dare
1: you? Yeah, well, <laughs> are you saying not guilty?
0: Are you saying whatever you want me to say?
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not really a people pleaser and I think that probably is partly due to that like I don't particularly feel like I have to sort of prove myself Mm. I have a slightly unhealthy arguably unhealthy sort of attitude generally which is if someone doesn't like something that I do or say I will just automatically assume that they're wrong yeah but it's quite a sort of good protective mechanism in that it just allows me to just sort of sail on unaffected in most cases anyway. Mm -hmm. Or I'll sort of mask the sort of slight worry just with being quite quick to sort of attack, I think. Doesn't make me sound very nice, does it?
0: Well, no, I think it makes you sound very self-aware. And I'm sure that it's not always the case. I think you're talking about potentially mainly professional settings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you behave really badly in a personal way, I'm sure you wouldn't just be like sailing on by. (laughs) You're wrong.
1: No, no, no. No, I don't think so.
0: Let me save you from yourself. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Thank
1: you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned in the introduction that you've got this, well, it's not really a new job anymore. So you've been, we're recording in November. So it's almost your year anniversary.
1: My year anniversary on Tuesday, in fact. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How's it going? Because it is a very specific skill set that you require to do that kind of live radio.
1: I think from my perspective, it's going well. I enjoy doing the show. I don't enjoy my alarm going off at three thirty every morning. Obviously, my career has, with the best one in the world, been a bit of a mess in terms of like trying to sort of create a, a coherent through line of what what does this person like doing? What are they interested in? It's all over the place, but that is a reflection of sort of who I am. Like I, I do have very disparate interests, and I'm quite sort of curious about a lot of different stuff. And this is the first time professionally that I have felt like I'm doing something where I get to look at all of the things that interest me. And that's great. And that feels, I feel very lucky to have found that.
0: What's it like living through the news era when you have to be engaged with it? Because for a lot of people, our response to daily assaults of trauma from different parts of the world is to ignore it, but you actively yes, have to. to. Listen to
1: smooth. Yes, yeah, it's that sort of exactly. thing.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Or yeah. to a lovely podcast. Yeah, for example. It can be quite emotionally taxing. When the Ukraine war broke out, I felt hopelessly out of my depth. And speaking to some of the people in Ukraine or escaping Ukraine, particularly in those first few weeks, I was really struggling to hold it together. And on a couple of occasions didn't and I just sort of broke down really because I couldn't really get my head around how awful it was Mm -hmm. and then just speaking to these desperate people I'd just not done that before and it was hard but oddly that does give quite a good perspective on everything else yeah because that is truly awful and the other kind of frantic news stuff is sometimes bad, but it's not Ukraine being invaded bad, mm. if you see what I mean.
0: Where do you take that emotional load after you come off air and you go back to your place in Manchester? Do you have a way of processing it and leaving it behind? Or do you talk to people? Or what? How do you do it? Uh, it's been a slightly
1: curious existence. So I was just renting a flat, in Manchester that was sort of like a a bachelor pad in a sort of new build where it was just me and then some footballers and some people on Love Island so it's just quite sort of surreal setup that would maybe have been quite fun when I was 25 but to be fair not 25 and my wife didn't really like it up there so she wasn't coming up so it was just me sort of rattling around in this quite odd odd building and my cat wasn't there either so it was sort of Quite bleak, truth be told. And I wasn't really talking to anyone about it, which probably wasn't very healthy. I think I was just sort of trying to work through it on my own. Mm. And I don't know how, how successfully I did that. Also, the other thing is, it feels incredibly <laughs> self-indulgent. Uh, and, I know, and also but to, I'm asking to, you to, about it. I, y- yeah. But do but you know what I mean? though? I like, I'm not the person who is being affected by that stuff. I'm just hearing about it. Yeah. And it's upsetting. But I wouldn't want to suggest that I am one of the people who is suffering.
0: Yeah. And you're not. And I think lots of people will relate to it because even though they're not Radio 5 presenters, it does feel as though we live in a society where we are constantly assailed by news yeah. and and sometimes that does have an impact and that's why I think it's really helpful to to talk about it and thank mm. you for sharing that because mm. it does sound dislocating and lonely
1: yeah yeah lonely lonely for sure mm. but i think that's slightly sort of circumstantial as well because actually the one person that i do speak to about everything is is My wife, Ema, and she's incredibly sort of emotionally intelligent in a way that I'm probably not so. And she's amazing at making me feel better about anything. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's a kind of, yeah, the circumstances currently have been not perfect for that.
0: And without your cat as well. Without, you you know, you. you, I'm not mocking. No, I know. No, I know.
1: I know know, you know. I miss my cat and I genuinely find the presence of my cat very very soothing. Yes. Like if I feel any kind of negativity, just sitting with Tippy for a bit will kind of take the edge off. I
0: know. Yeah. I know. How do you feel about failure broadly before we get onto your specific failures? Yes. How was it thinking about failure in advance of this recording?
1: Actually fine because I I think a while ago I had a sort of realization that I definitely used to be someone who would just want to be right about everything. And now I think I'm someone who would quite like to find out what the truth is.
0: Mm.
1: And that's quite a different sort of mindset because it means you have to be prepared to be wrong about stuff and to evolve your thinking about stuff and take on board new information and be quite open to that. And failure broadly gives you an opportunity to learn stuff. I think. And I I see it as a sort of self-improvement thing as well. So the more that I learn, the more knowledge I have. And I I kind of, yeah, as I said before, I'm quite curious about everything. So, yeah, I think failure is pretty useful.
0: Great. Failure is data acquisition. It's almost as if I've primed you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Failure is data acquisition makes it feel like you're sort of interviewing an AI, like, it, like it's Yeah, such and, a... and the
0: slight problem with that phrase, as much as I love it, is that it implies that I'm saying you should go out and pursue failure actively, and I'm not no, saying that. No,
1: no, no. Yeah. But it's a good way of framing it when it does happen.
0: Exactly. Which brings us on to your first failure, actually, because yes. it's about the fact that you gave up on your maths degree. Yes. And the reason I say it brings us on to that is because I want to ask you about the notion of failure in maths and in science, but we'll get mm. on to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Tell me why you gave up your maths degree and why you consider it a failure.
1: Well, it was definitely a failure because I gave up. There's <laughs> not really any other way of...
0: Well, I don't know, uh, you uh, see. Mm. Because I actually think knowing when to quit is a form of empowerment and isn't a failure.
1: That's a good way to think of it. I'll take that, <laughs> thanks. That's not how I have viewed it. So I, I think I had a pretty standard route into doing maths at university. Most people who do maths at university have found maths easy up to that point. You know, maybe you've been the best at maths in your school and you're used to it just being sort of quite fun and straightforward and you just like, you just get it and so fine. And so that's very much how I went into my maths degree. And then very quickly, it got very, very hard and sense so like a deeply conceited thing to say. I don't think I'd found anything hard before up to that point. Or if I had, I would have just sort of shelved it. But I don't really remember anything. So coming into contact with something we go, not only is this hard, I feel like I can't do this, shook me t- totally. And I didn't have the personality type, certainly then, to kind of rally and be like, no, no, okay, we I, yeah. you know, You can get through this. You just need to work harder. I sort of immediately threw the towel. I was like, fuck it. Because I hated the feeling of not being able to do it. And I still regret that decision. It wouldn't be like that now. And I guess this is probably quite a common experience. But for me, school and university both came at the wrong time (laughs) for me. And I didn't really have any... I wasn't really interested in studying or academia working hard or even learning unless it was absolutely on my terms whereas now I genuinely fantasize like one day one day I will get my master's degree like I'm convinced of it I have to go back and do that and I think I'd really enjoy it and I'd even enjoy finding it difficult and working through that but when I was 18 19 it just I didn't have it in me but it sort of it hangs over me as a yeah, as something I didn't complete and should have done. And it also feels like a, a personality defect.
0: Yeah. To put this into context... You, you have like,
1: to agree with personality <laughs> defects, by the way.
0: I want to come back to your personality defects. <laughs> oh, good. But to put this into context, you were at Cambridge University. So yeah. this is also like an elite form of maths degree.
1: Yeah, I think it's the hardest... I mean, it's amazing that I did it to myself, really. I think it's the hardest maths degree or was then in the world. So I don't know what I was expecting. Well, I do. I was expecting it to be easy.
0: Yeah, there are two things I want to ask you off the back of that. One is the personality aspect of it.
1: Mm.
0: How much up to that point, and perhaps afterwards, do you think that you connected your character with being the best at things, where you couldn't separate between the two? So if you weren't the best at something, it meant you were a failure as a person. Um, <laughs> like, Not at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very competitive. Yes, and I think that speaks to that, doesn't it? Why, Anything that why I why are you
0: competitive? I think because
1: my parents are competitive. Okay. I think it's, it's, I think it's that simple. And and my and what's quite funny about that is my mum would say that she is not at all competitive. I mean, she really would. She'd just be like, "Well, no, absolutely not." But she really is in a kind of subtle and gentle way. And my dad is quite competitive, and you know, just sort of growing up playing games, we're just that you were always sort of playing to win. Yeah, I've definitely taken that on in my adult life. And so I do always want to do well at everything. Mm. And then if I don't do well at something, I'm, I don't like it.
0: But do you always want to do better than other people at something?
1: Ideally, yes. Okay. Yeah, because that's the best form of competition when you're sort of when you're beating someone. <laughs> I quite want to do better than I have done previously. So I'm sort of interested in competing with myself as well. But you got to remember, I mean, this is the funny thing about being an only child. I can remember having a tiny little snooker table, but like a child-sized snooker table. And I would spend a lot of time playing snooker against myself. Mm. And that's quite an interesting sort of psychological exercise. <laughs> I'd also play scale-extric against myself. At no point did I think this was strange, but I suppose it is. And so you've got you know, sort of built-in competing with yourself. And then if other people are around, also compete with them. And I suppose I do probably attach quite a lot of value to winning.
0: What's the feeling that you get when you win?
1: It sort of feels like, oh, yeah, that's the way it should be. Like, yeah. I feel, I've actually, this has definitely improved, but it would, it would sort of eat me up to lose at stuff, which I'm sure that's not particularly healthy.
0: What class would you describe yourself as?
1: Well, that is also quite complicated, and I have a real issue around this stuff. I think I am just sort of middle class, but I also think that I would like to be like my family who are working class, but I'm not. So I sort of straddle the two and it really shouldn't matter at all, but it sort of does. And I, I, I've never been able to shake that. Like it's a slight sort of chip that I have on my shoulder. I only realised this quite recently. So I went to a fee-paying grammar school on a scholarship. So I was surrounded by kids who were well off and definitely better off than, mm-hmm. th- than I was. And so that sort of solidified in my mind the idea that I was actually sort of, that we were quite poor. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we were. I think mm-hmm. if I'd just gone to the local comp, I wouldn't have felt that and I probably wouldn't have this strange sort of sense of, yeah, what my upbringing was like. Yeah. It warped that and I hadn't gauged that at all. But I'm pretty sure that's why I sort of feel like I'm a bit more working class. And and in fairness, like my family are working class, but, you know, I definitely grew up in a sort of middle class environment and went to a school at the middle class and then went to Cambridge. I mean, it's, it's extremely straight down the line middle class.
0: It's a specifically British question that I've asked. And actually, I don't know how helpful it is, even though I asked it, because I think that what you're getting at there is that sometimes the idea of class really obscures who you are as a person. People can't see you as mm-hmm. you are because of how you are now. Yeah. And I had a similar thing in that, as you know, I, I sound quite posh, but I actually grew up in Northern Ireland, got a scholarship to boarding school, all of that sort of stuff. And I found it upsetting that people assumed I was your two-dimensional posh person when yeah. I wasn't because there was so much more story behind it. And I think it's that thing, it's that lack of curiosity that a label
1: yeah. engenders. Yeah, and a kind of defensiveness as well, yes. I think. I'm definitely defensive about that, and I, I find it impossible, <laughs> and it's pathetic, if, and it doesn't really come up anymore, but if it does come up that I went to a fee-paying school, I cannot mm-hmm. not say, on a scholarship, on a scholarship. <laughs> but do you know, and, and, yeah. and like, why? Like, it doesn't really matter, but I sort of, yeah, I feel like I'm, and this doesn't even really make any sense, but, like, betraying my roots, mm-hmm. Betraying my family to make out that I've sort of come from money when I definitely haven't. But it's all sort of in my mind. I don't think anyone really cares.
0: What was Cambridge like for you then, given that
1: mm,
0: internal chippiness?
1: It definitely bought out a bit of that chippiness. Particularly, you know, when we were there, it was very public school dominated. And that, as a sort of category of person, is quite full on. <laughs> And I found them quite hard work. And that sort of made me rail against that slightly or always want to make sure that I didn't get associated with that. Mm. It was quite an exclusive but massive club, wasn't it? Of people who all sort of looked the same and dressed the same and spoke the same and sort of whose parents were friends.
0: I had a different experience from you, I think, at Cambridge. And yes, there was that aspect, but I felt that my friendship group was more diverse than I had anticipated it being. It was certainly more diverse than my school.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: And because I was lucky in the sense that I loved my degree. And Mm. so there was an enormous amount that came from that.
1: Yeah, But my
0: best friend didn't have a good time there for very similar reasons that you're outlining. Mm. But... You gave up your maths degree, yes. or you quit it at the appropriate time, yes, and you started doing natural sciences. Yes. What does science, she says, as the GCSE single science mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. alumnus, uh-huh. what does science teach us about failure?
1: Effectively, it's the whole point of science. And I think sometimes that gets lost. We mentioned this quote, the Isaac Asimov quote, where he says, the most exciting phrase in science isn't eureka, but that's funny as in it's just less interesting when you sort of prove a thing that you thought you were going to prove. It's more interesting when something totally unexpected happens or something goes wrong or something's really peculiar. That's when it's exciting. And so science, you you could look at the history of science and say it is a history of failure because you're constantly trying to kind of (laughs) fine tune your picture of the world and you're always just replacing theories with new, better theories. And one way of looking at that is those previous theories have ultimately failed. And that's absolutely fine. And that's what progress is. I so, love
0: that so much.
1: I'm good. I'm good?
0: <laughs> I don't, yeah. I, I,
1: I am. I that's am. That's that
0: self-belief. I that Rick self-belief.
1: <laughs> good. I wanted to say I'm happy. Yeah. But in the end, I went with I'm good.
0: Okay, let's get on to your second failure. So now you've graduated from university. Yes. 2015 rolls around. Yes. You give a TEDx talk. Yes. About voting.
1: Yes. Um, and your
0: second failure, sorry, just quickly, is not getting young people to vote. So tell us what happened.
1: When I was growing up, there was not really any sort of political discourse. I didn't have any interest in politics. I found sort of politics chat a real turn off. I just vote. didn't really have the, I didn't I didn't really vote because I didn't feel that I understood what I was voting on. I hadn't studied politics at any point, never taught any at school. I just felt totally disengaged and disenfranchised from it. And also just that classic thing where if someone is speaking about politics and they drop in a term that you don't understand, it, I was just too embarrassed to say, I'm so sorry, I don't really get what that is i don't know what that bit of jargon means or whatever and so i would just totally check out and then in about 2013 the bbc wanted to start doing a sort of young voters version of question time they approached me and asked if i would do it and i was a bit like i don't know i think that might be tricky but it was live and actually oddly it was live question time is Pre-recorded, so they do it an hour before and then put it out. And free speech, as Gosh. it was as it was called. Well, I mean, you know, your word, not mine, but certainly my thought. Um, and yeah, it's it's all wrangling a live audience. It, it felt sort of exciting, and I and I and I just figured actually maybe it's useful for me to be coming at this from a, a position of not knowing anything because I can kind of learn stuff, and I'll probably ask. Or I hope I'll ask questions that will be useful for the audience that we're trying to serve, and so. I said, yes, I started doing it. And as soon as I started doing it, I just got sucked in. I just really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed particularly talking to young people about it. But what I quickly realised is that is that young people, and this still applies now, I would say, much like I was when I was younger, just a quite sort of disengaged and I didn't feel like it was their fault. I, I thought there was a failure of the system mm-hmm. to bring young people in. And to give them the knowledge that they needed to get involved. And I also thought that that was adversely affecting them. And it definitely was, and I think is, because you know, there's a sort of fundamental truism, which is if you don't vote, then politicians aren't going to try and win your vote because there's no need, because they're pragmatic, and therefore they won't serve your needs. And I started to get quite cross about this and so i did i sort of thought about what some possible solutions might be and i went and spoke to a load of smart people about it and kind of put it together into a tedx talk that went quite well i was very nervous before that actually yeah I bet um, you were. more more nervous than before this wow, um, not saying yeah i know i know do you know why you get butterflies you know what that is no tell me it's part of your fight or flight response And so there's all kinds of physiological effects of that. And one of them is your body starts pushing all of the blood and oxygen and stuff to the muscles that are going to be required for fighting or flighting. And the stuff that isn't important for that, the blood flows away from it. So the blood flows away from your gastrointestinal system, and that's what gives you a funny feeling. So So
0: does that apply for love as well? When you're falling in love and you get butterflies, is that the same thing? Because you're about to blow apart the myth of romantic love. I I don't don't think
1: it's going to be this. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some similar brain chemistry going on, but it's not going to be the same. I would say it was. I think that's different. I think that's different. Sorry, but I don't know. So I did this talk. It was pretty well received. And then a publisher just sort of said, do you want to try and put out a book before the 2015 election? They were like, you wouldn't have that long to write it. I'd never written a book. And uh, they said, you'd have six weeks. And I was like, that seems, that seems all right, I think. And I, and I did that. And it's not long enough to write a book, it turns out. And it was an absolute nightmare. it's <laughs> so miserable. But I managed to do it. And all, all I was trying to do with the book was just lay out in simple sort of jargon-free terms the sort of political landscape in an entirely impartial way and just sort of say, Well, look, this is somewhere you can get the information you need to come up with a view on who to vote for. Because that's what I felt when I, I went around to schools and talked to kids and it was never a lack of a lack of interest. It was just that they didn't know who you literally go into schools and I'd say, what do you know about the Conservatives? What do you know about Labour? And it'd be stuff like, Well I know I think the Conservatives are the blue ones. It's that and I was like, well this is clearly not their fault. It's just not being told stuff, and and quite often a question that would come up when I was talking to them was like, "Well, where can I go to find this stuff out?" Then and I was like, I "Don't know really, because there's so much information mm. that you know just going online it's hard to navigate." So I was just trying to amalgamate stuff into a sort of palatable form, and it just sort of I had a real sort of fire in my belly to try and effect change, I guess. <laughs> And so I did lots of talks and I put the book out and and really sort of threw everything that I could at it. And, and I honestly felt like, oh, maybe I've got a sort of unique opportunity here because the people that I'm trying to talk to know me from doing stuff that they'd like to Academy, that they've sort of enjoyed watching. And so they might be more inclined to read a book about politics written than by a sort of political journalist or what have you. That's proved to be sort of partially true in that I did get some genuinely heartening feedback from people who read the book and literally said, Oh, I wouldn't have I wasn't gonna vote. And then I read your book and, and I voted. And I still occasionally get messages that make me sort of slightly well up by someone who will say, Oh, I read your book and now I'm just started doing a politics degree. And that that sort of stuff. But in very stark terms, it had no effect. I don't think I did anything wrong, exactly, but it rankles. I feel weirdly sort of guilty about it. I don't know. It's your fault, what's happening
0: to politics now.
1: Well, (laughs) not quite that.
0: It sounds like, as well, you were genuinely passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're seeking to cure disenfranchisement and Mm. you're really enfranchised emotionally in that Yeah, and then the response is more disenfranchisement even though it's probably less and you have actually made a difference and that's great but
1: but But such a small difference though like
0: but I feel that probably the entire political system was geared up against you because there are powers that be that don't want it to change.
1: Absolutely. Because what's the incentive for the political classes? It's just a bit more effort if you have Mm to start trying to curry favour with more people. But I just wish I'd been able to do more and I don't know how I would have done more. But as you say, I genuinely, I really cared about it. Mm -hmm. I wish it worked out better. But Mm -hmm. I also came into contact with lots of other people who were sort of doing a similar thing who were proper activists and I realized that to be an activist it has to be the one yes. thing that you do it has to be your sole focus and I was sort of trying to do that alongside also just sort of my normal work and maybe that's the number of it I'd see that there probably was a way I could have done more mm. but I didn't I sort of did everything that I felt that I could yeah yeah at the time
0: we just had Greta Thunberg on the podcast and that's absolutely the case with her her entire life is built around this central focus Mm. and I'm so grateful for people like her in the world and Mm. I know that I couldn't do that Mm. and just by talking about it now who knows who will be prompted to go and vote and buy your book and so I wouldn't be too hard on yourself and you still wrote a book in six weeks which is yeah. Extraordinary.
1: I cannot recommend it. I can recommend no, the book, I can't no. recommend the okay. process. <laughs> also, you'll be unsurprised to hear that a book written for an election seven years ago is hopelessly out of date. Yeah. I mean, it would be quite funny to revisit the chapter where I sort of lay out what might happen with the EU. Oh my God. Um, I don't know if I could bear to read it. <laughs> a lot's gone <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's go on to your third failure. Yes. Which I'm wildly intrigued by. <laughs> of course, yeah. Your third failure is relationships. Yes. And that's how it came to me. It's like a single word failure. Yeah. And I was like, okay, great. Let's have this conversation. Well, I think it's good to. It's a great idea. Yeah. And I'm so pleased that you chose it. Yeah. Why did you choose it?
1: A few different reasons. I had a real wobble in 2013 where I was in China visiting friends who were living there. And for a few days, I went off on my own just because they were going back to Beijing and, and I and we were in Shanghai and I went to went and stayed in this really lovely hotel in the middle of nowhere in a sort of tea plantation about two hours outside of Shanghai I'm not brilliant on my own actually in general which is strange given I'm an only chart but I like it for a little bit and then I want to be with people but I was on my own and it was lonely I went on a walk and this hotel was sort of in the middle of nowhere. I took my phone and a little sort of hand-drawn map that a guy from the hotel had given me of a good loop to do. I went out at about midday. I don't know why I did that. It was unbearably hot. I've never sweated more in my life. i bought two bottles of water with me. I drank all of my water within about the first 20 minutes. And then I got lost in this bamboo forest. And I was wandering around this bamboo forest, just sweat pouring off me. My phone had overheated, so I couldn't use the maps on that. And I had this horrible thought, which was genuinely, I think I might die here. And then my next thought was, I don't think anyone will realise for quite a while. Ooh. And then I was just, and it, it was sort of quite crushing. The really perverse thing about it was I was in a relationship at the time. And I think I'd been in that relationship for a lot longer than I should have been that's what I mean by failure. I think out of fear, I probably have stayed in relationships for longer than I should have done. And it took this moment of me thinking, oh, if I die here, I don't think anyone's going to particularly care, to then when I subsequently, it was okay, and I managed to find a very friendly little Chinese man who helped me to a, a shop where I, I bought up their water supplies. But when I then got back, because I've sort of worked through it, and I was like, oh, okay, I did this. I shouldn't be in this relationship. Even then, when I got back from China, it still took sort of a week for that relationship to end. And really it was my partner who who ended it because she also knew that it was over and it had been over for, for a while. But I was like an idiot as well. Like she'd, we'd lived together and she'd moved out about sort of three months before that and I was still sort of holding on to the idea that maybe that would, maybe that, that was a good thing and it wasn't and when I look back I'm just like this is very much criticism of me and not of her but we should probably have broken up years before that I think that's on me and I think that comes back to my just not being very good at sort of dealing with emotions confronting my emotions expressing my emotions sort of thinking deeply about what I want and just kind of being a bit blinkered and just sort of carrying on regardless with stuff so I feel like I've slightly failed there with failed her and failed myself in that regard And that probably there's definitely a version where we split up a long time before and have much better memories mm. of that relationship yeah and I guess I mean I will just ask you what you think about this. But we, when we went out, we broke up and then got back together again. And I wonder if we should have got back together again. What do you reckon?
0: I know what you mean, and I think we should have done. Oh, let's go. Okay, that's I actually good. Do okay, good. Okay, because good. Because there was no doubt in our minds. I don't think when we split up that it like as in I'm glad in a way that I had a less satisfying experience of our relationship for that last few year or nine months, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Because
0: it taught me something that I needed to know. Whereas I think before I had felt that our relationship shouldn't have ended and I still Mm. held out hope.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it was
0: actually quite good for me. I could let it go with a sort of finality more than I would have been able to before. Okay. Why do you regret it?
1: <laughs> no, I don't really. I don't. I genuinely wanted to. Wanted yeah, to this ask is you. so and interesting. Just, it, it is, and I was uh, as I was on my way in. I was like, "What's good about this is you don't get generally you don't get to do the sort no. of post match analysis. <laughs>
0: no, with and your because tre- good like, to know. Yeah, twenty years has passed. I was trying yeah, to work. Yeah, yeah, a long
1: time. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so time enough has passed but
1: it's, it's that it. it's fine to talk. about it. That it's fine to talk about it. yeah. And
0: I hate breakups. I find mm. them really, really difficult. Yeah. And our breakup taught me something instructive because I didn't feel resentful, angry. Like, I didn't...
1: No, no, that's true, actually.
0: And I think (laughs) you were very nice to me. Like, when we were going out, you were very loving and really good for my sense of self and confidence. And my mother still says that to this day. And I actually have to thank you for that because I...
1: It's quite an annoying thing for your mum to still say... I guess. Oh, I mean, she is doesn't it? say it
0: often, no. Yeah. Like, Just
1: like once a week. <laughs>
0: if, she, yeah. if she's seen you on, you know, yeah. the main in Chelsea reunion, she'll be sure. like, oh. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: because I didn't have a lot of self-worth when we started going out. Uh. And so I'm always grateful to you for that. And there's a lot of, well, not anymore, now I'm fine, but I there are a few exes that I felt really angry at for, and upset over, and you're not one of them.
1: That is lovely to hear. You're welcome. Yes, I've And I genuinely
0: that. mean it, and I'm yeah. not even lying. And also the other thing, and the reason why I love we're talking about it is because I think that there'll be people listening who are possibly going through a breakup or feeling resentful or feeling lost and confused mm. and upset, and I have been there, and mm. I hear you. And I hope that we offer them a sort of hope that, that actually it ends up being okay, and you end yeah. up being grateful for a relationship, even if it ends sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes even because it ends. And I have never met your wife other than on Instagram social media and uh, like following her career in a weird, mm. creepy, stalky way because I think she seems phenomenal. She and is, I'm so, so glad yeah. that you're with her. Mm. So she's a writer, actor. She recently wrote Karen Peary, mm-hmm. uh, adapted it for Screen. Yeah. And I'm uh, genuinely really happy for you. Yeah. Look at me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm so
0: <laughs> grown you. up.
1: You are so grown up. <laughs> Equally, I have to say yeah. that The last time that I saw you was about seven years ago, and you were in not such a good place.
0: No, it was the darkest period of my life.
1: Yeah, yeah. And now, when I see what you're up to, and you've got Justin. Yes. And that makes me really happy as well. I'm like, I'm so glad that things have sort of worked out. Yeah you so so i i what i'm saying is i'm also a grown up.
0: Yes, well done. <laughs> yeah. You're better. Actually, I don't yeah. think you are better at being a grown up than I
1: am. No, I don't think so. so. <laughs> no, no,
0: no. <laughs> I'm not going to give you that. No. That that win.
1: So the other thing that i feel is that maybe in my 20s into 30s, i was sort of trying to get ahead of myself. I sort of wanted the thing immediately. And you don't it yeah. it doesn't need to be the thing immediately.
0: No, and i also think if you're a high achiever, which mm. you were and are then you're used to feeling like I put in the work and I get the results and sometimes that translates so in my situation that translates in a personal way when I first tried and failed to have a baby like that is that kind of thing so maybe your way is sort of personal relationships in tandem with a career that you wanted to happen straight away Mm. and I do remember that being a flashpoint for us because I was probably quite annoying to go out with because I always knew what I wanted to do and I was always super focused.
1: Yeah, and And very successful very early, I would say. I mean, I was doing,
0: yeah, I was doing... You might
1: not see that, but I think that from my point of view, I was like, I'm going out with a girl who's really sort of together and has like bought her first flat and is, you know, working in journalism and she started to work on her writing When is the artichoke book coming out? Oh
0: my God, I can't believe you remember that. (laughs) That is amazing. Do you know I thought of that the other day as I reached (laughs) for an artichoke in my fridge? What Rick is alluding to is the fact that I always knew that I wanted to write books, Mm -hmm. but I felt that I needed to write something. And I think this is what puts a lot of people off. I felt that I needed to write something completely unique. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there were some books that had become bestsellers that were like the history of salt. And it was kind of offbeat. And I had been advised by someone to find that, to find my history of salt. I was like, okay, well, I like artichokes. Let
1: me introduce you to so your <laughs> friend of mine, the artichoke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I used to spend time in the British Library researching yes. the history of the artichoke. And what I found out from all of that was that it's not, not actually that interesting. Mm. There's not that much to say about There's it.
1: There's a pub just north of Great Portland Street mm-hmm. called yes, something like the Queen like the Artichoke. The Queen and, the artichoke. Yes. and genuinely... I go past there quite a lot. And when I see it, I do think like, it, it, and the thought doesn't go anywhere. It's literally just artichoke, Elizabeth's artichoke book on, on a go. That, like, it's so weird. Sadly, really, it never went anywhere. No, way. but well, maybe time to resurrect. I mean, maybe.
0: As I was saying with your master's degree, it's good to know when to quit
1: yeah. sometimes. Yeah. You were definitely a lot further down the path of sort of what you wanted to do than I was. Yeah. At that time, for sure.
0: And I also feel that the early days of your TV career, so when we were together, you got that job on Rise. Yes. Which was like your big break. And you had, it was early mornings again. And I was thinking of you when doing research for this, like the early mornings that you're back in that ring. Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry. That is awful because you have to go to bed at like Mm -hmm, mm 8pm. But I felt that TV changed you.
1: Oh, interesting. In, and, um, and, I, and I don't in, think... In a good way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not in an entirely positive yeah, yeah, way. sure, sure. But I don't know how you feel about that, because I feel you've been on this like, extraordinary personal growth journey, and I salute you for it, because I think you seem so much more fully rounded, and that's not a dig at your fat face, which
1: <laughs> yeah, <sure>. yeah. <laughs> which
0: you don't have, but Absolutely. you've always been paranoid about. Yes. But I don't know, it's just really nice to see that mm. you have grown... And that makes it sound like I'm passively, aggressively judging in the past. and I'm not. But I did feel like I can't compete with a glitzy TV career. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think the sort of the first flush of and it was such a minor thing, but the sort of the thrill mm-hmm. of being on TV maybe wasn't that good for me but in, it, in my mind anyway it definitely that settled down yeah. very quickly the sort of the novelty of it all and also as I was saying at the beginning like just the realization that I probably wasn't yeah I actually don't like that element of it yeah but initially I think it was all just a bit too much probably and yeah I, it was um, a lot yeah yeah
0: I'm just laughing because there's another just one more thing that I want to talk to you about for which on, is <laughs> do you remember that when we split up the first time,
1: yeah.
0: I I had bought tickets, I think for your birthday or something, for a Justin Timberlake yeah. concert. Yes, I do, yes. And yes, we went. Yes, yes. I mean, I don't know whether you really enjoyed it, but I found it quite an awkward evening. But yeah. that I had been the one to insist that we do that. Mm. And I have reflected on that many times subsequently mm. because it's about, and I think lots of people have this. There's a sense sometimes when you break up with a romantic partner that you still want to inveigle your way into their life. You still want to have some sort of hold on them.
1: Yeah, And yeah, you insist yeah, yeah, on meeting yeah.
0: up and, and actually it's the worst then, thing for you.
1: You're sort of meeting up in a very like adult way. we we're, yes. we're just cool. Yes. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah, I do remember the Justin Timberlake.
0: Awful. And yeah. I came to realise over the course of years of trying to do similar things with people that it was never about what I was telling myself it was about. It was about my fundamental lack of self-worth and wanting the other person to say, oh, I was wrong. Mm. And it's never going to happen. And it's not about how much you love the other person. It's about how much you fail to love yourself.
1: Shall I tell you something that you might find funny in hindsight about that evening? Yes. So I was very, very hungover, but thought, you've got to go, just got to do this. Like, yeah, this will be fine. And on the tube on the way there... I soiled myself. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: did not expect that story to go that way. On the tube? Yeah, yeah. On the tube?
1: Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh,
0: what ha- Okay, so, so, then, so what so do then, you do?
1: Well, then you're just thinking, What a nightmare. Well, this is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to go and watch Justin Timberlake with my ex-girlfriend, and I've just shit myself. <laughs> oh, my God. yeah. Yeah. So, no, I I certainly remember the evening.
0: No, but what did you do?
1: Well, I had to, basically, (laughs) had to uh, sort of waddle (laughs) waddle in to meet you, and then, at the first opportunity, go to the toilets and try and sort of, you know, deal with the situation. Oh, my
0: God.
1: Yeah. Bad evening for me.
0: Did you shake your pants off and just, like, leave them in the loo somewhere? Yeah,
1: I think I threw them away, yeah.
0: Okay, <laughs> you can Just save put me a lot of spin on, um, it's A massively yeah. different spin. <laughs> yes. I'm actually embarrassed that I didn't notice that there was no like whiff of. Well, this is yeah. okay. This yeah. has been
1: <laughs> enlightening in, in all sorts of ways. For
0: any listener who feels like they want to have this,
1: Q&A. amazingly, and that's not one of my failures.
0: <laughs> 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 okay, so wait. So bringing it back is your failure. In relationship. Yes, yes. Because there is a plural there. There was a plural in the failure. So you've mentioned the long-term relationship that you were in that maybe both of you were in longer than should have been.
1: Yeah, yeah. But
0: do you feel like it is a repeated failure?
1: So my girlfriend at university before you, I definitely stayed in that relationship for too long as well. Even more clearly. I mean, I probably shouldn't have ever gone out in the first place. And I think she would probably think that as well. Yeah, so those two. And then, as I said, I was interested to ask you about the fact that we got back together because I wondered if for me it sort of fell into a pattern of Mm. just trying to sort of persist with something when I shouldn't. Yeah. The thing is, I didn't feel that at the time. It's good to get your perspective on it. Yeah. That makes me feel quite good about it. I don't
0: feel that at all. I'm really glad that that. Happened yeah. actually.
1: So you could have that shit nine months and be exactly. like Exactly Good God after <laughs> yeah. the literal
0: shitting yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I had the shit nine months. It yeah. wasn't you shit, got, but you got, it was
1: you, you got back together with me after that. So that's good, isn't it? <laughs> I
0: know. If only I'd known and then we could have, then it wouldn't have been a failure. And like, yeah. but I am a huge believer that relationships aren't failures just because they end, because mm. every single relationship I've had has taught me something mm. worth knowing. One is not to go to a Justin Timberlake concert with your hungover ex. Mm
1: -hmm. Just in case. And
0: bring us up to date now. So your marriage now, do you think you have learnt the lessons and you're more emotionally open?
1: Yeah, I do. And I don't... It's a relief. (sighs) Yeah, it is for, for everyone. But I do think that that has come less from past experience and more from Ema's kind of... She's from quite a big family. They talk about everything. She's very open and all of the things that I'm not really. And she's just sort of encouraged me and been very patient with me. I mean, it seems mad to say it, but sometimes I just don't know how to express how I'm feeling. Like Almost like literally like the words I don't have. And she's sort of helped me with that, I think. I mean, she's not like my therapist, but yeah, she's sort of improved me massively
0: yeah i think but that's very beautiful that you have someone that you feel safe enough to do that with Mm. that's what a gift
1: yeah yeah i feel massively lucky because i think i can be quite difficult i don't think i'm sort of an easy person to go out with at times (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah
0: I think you can you can go detached rather than sharing your pain. That was my experience.
1: Exactly that. And
0: actually, if you give yourself the benefit of the doubt there, that's quite a generous thing to do. It's like you feel like you should be able to work it out yourself. You don't want to have to burden someone else with it.
1: There's definitely an element of that and sort of just being quite closed off and finally sort of recognising with Ema's help that being closed off is not... Good in, in, in the long run, bottling stuff up isn't good. Sulking isn't good. I'm much better at not. I still Occasionally, I've still got it in me, but I'm much less of a sulker than I used to be, which is, and that, that is good. Because sulking, for me, was such an odd, and is, when occasionally I sort of slip into it. It's such an odd sensation, because I feel like you're sort of vaguely trying to punish the other person, mm-hmm. but also simultaneously making yourself feel a hundred times worse. Yeah. So no one... Like literally no one is winning from sulking, but I'd sort of, I think both my mum and dad sulk and you, you learn a lot of stuff from your mum and dad. And you yeah. like
0: cats and you learn a lot from that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, cats yeah. always sulk. Yeah, but it works for them. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> I don't think they've got the sort of cognitive capacity to sort of feel bad when they're doing How it. How dare you? I, but I, I genuinely don't think they do. <laughs> I'm my sorry. Cat uh-huh.
0: Yeah, well, my cat's a ginger cat and they're known to be the sort of, emotionally mm. intellectual elite of the cat world. Mm. There's a yeah. There's, there's a whole thing. I about
1: would it. I would never ever describe Tippy as the intellectual elite of the cat she's world. She's a ginger though, is she? She's no, she's a tortoise shell okay. and she's quite a strange creature. Okay. But I love her to bits. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've loved this. It's been super enlightening and enjoyable. Yeah. How has it been for you?
1: The same actually. Good. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No need Having to shit been... yourself.
1: No, well, uh, well. Listen, even if I do, you won't notice. <laughs> you just find some pants later and be like, "He did
0: fucking it again." <laughs> how has it been for you? And what's it been like talking about your failures over the last hour? I
1: think quite illuminating, actually. I think you asked some quite good questions. <laughs> it's funny to me to think about how this would have played out if we'd done it ten years ago. Mm. I would have struggled, I think. Yeah. So uh, so I'm kind of <laughs> patting myself on the back again. <laughs> well done. It is sort of quite a uniquely funny situation mm. to talk to you about it as well. Yeah. But not in a bad way. And there was obviously the fear that it might be in a bad way.
0: Yes. It's been great. Rick Edwards, thank you so much for coming on How to Fail.
1: Thanks, Elizabeth.